Danusha is the author of The Moons of August, which was chosen by Naomi Shihab Nye as a winner of the Autumn House Press Poetry Prize, and it was a finalist for the Milt Kessler Book Award. Her second book, Bonfire Opera, is forthcoming from the University of Pittsburgh Press in spring of 2020. Some of her poems have been published in The Best American Poetry, The New York Times, the American Poetry Review, Tin House, the Gettysburg Review, and Plowshares. She teaches poetry independently and is the current Poet Laureate of Santa Cruz County, California. Hi, Danusha. Hi. Well, we're going to be talking to you today and listening to some of your poetry, but I thought when I was thinking about what I wanted to be talking about that I would begin at the beginning which is your childhood and some of your childhood influences. So I know your mother was from Barbados, and I've heard you talk about visiting Barbados and meeting your grandfather, ah. who was a poet. Yes. So I'm just wondering about some of your experiences around him that might have influenced you. Could you tell us a little bit about that as a way to start off? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, actually. Um, yes, my mother's from the island of Barbados, although she was raised largely in London as she went off to school there. But yeah, she was from Barbados and I did go there oh, a couple or few times growing up. Not a lot. But what I really remember from those trips, other than, hello, monkeys, <laughs> and all the things that, you know, we don't have here that were just amazing to me as a kid. Um, and my cousins and all of that is I remember my granddad would go on these walks on the beach with his friends and they were all poets. He, um, the books he published were actually not poetry. They were, uh, bits about life in Barbados. And, uh, one is called Wayside Sketches, Portraits of West Indian Life. And he was writing these, you know, gosh, I think back in the thirties and forties, these sketches of what it was to live in the Caribbean in those days. Um, but his friends had all these really cool names, like Neilton Seal was one of them, and Bruce St. John. And they all had these really gorgeous Caribbean accents mixed with the sort of British lilt. And I would hear them talking about poetry and reciting bits of verse as they walked along Yes, it was actually called Dover Beach near my grandparents' house. So it was sort of like being inside of a poem. And I remember thinking, I don't really know what, I didn't even really know what they're talking about, but whatever it was, I wanted it. I wanted to live in that world that somehow these men walking on the beach were part of. Hmm. Well, there, there's a couple of things that are interesting about that. One, you say that it sounds like he was writing memoir. 
He was in a way. I mean, it wasn't so much personal, a lot of it. It was observational. Mm -hmm. So the little sections in Wayside Sketches were like the shop girl Mm. or the fish sellers. Well, that does sound a bit like poetry. In a way it does. And they were very poetic little segments too, um, just describing that era. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds a little bit like what you do, just little Hmm. moments, little vignettes that you take and you expand into something larger. It is a little bit like what you do, but what you describe about feeling like you're inside of a poem is the way one feels when one is writing a lot of poetry, is that everything feels alive. That's true. That's really true. I think that's, isn't that part of what makes us want to do it in a way? It's that when you have the practice of writing poems, you get to live as though you're inside of that poem because you're you have your eyes and ears open. Mm-hmm. You're enhanced. I mean, your senses are enhanced. Everything is more alive. You're seeing everything as a metaphor, as a, as full of possibility. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. So your mother was from Barbados. You spent time there. You were around your grandfather who had that beautiful lilting Caribbean accent. Yeah. And then your father was also Dutch. Yeah, my dad is from Amstelveen um, in Holland. Yes, born in 1940 in Holland. And so I like to say that everybody in my family has a different accent, even though that's not quite true. But my mom's got the Caribbean thing. My dad, the Dutch accent, like he would say, we loved this as kids. He said dinosaurs instead of dinosaurs. It sounds you know, like we, a candy. It does. We love, I think that might be a candy now, but we loved that. And then, of course, my husband is from Mexico, so many an accent. So do you think that these different linguistic rhythms and word choices um, that you heard, um, having that diversity of language and culture affected your poetry and your work? I think it probably did. I think there's something specifically about the Dutch cadence and the Caribbean one uh, and Barbadian or Bajan um, one that are very, um, very musical and lilting. They kind of have a sing-song quality to them. And I've had people tell me that I have a little like of a musical or sort of up and down (laughs) lilting to my voice compared to a more flat American accent. And I think that that does get into the poems a little bit. I'm guessing that it does. I think that probably our listeners are nodding their heads right now because, yes, I do oh. think you have a very <laughs> sort of an up and down, uh, down uh, to your yeah cadence. Uh, and so, okay, you lived in Berkeley. You lived in Mill Valley. You've lived in Beirut. Uh, you visited Barbados. Um, so you have a lot of different landscapes to draw from. Hmm. Um, and some of your poems are very placed and oriented. So how do you think the landscape affects your poems? Gosh, that's a, that's a good question. I feel like the California landscape is really the thing that bleeds into the poems all the time. And there's just so much California in my poems, because that's where I've spent most of my life. And yes, more in this part of, you know, between Santa Cruz and Mill Valley and Berkeley. And so that's in there a lot, all that dry grass, you know, a lot of poppies, you know, Gary Yang's got his mushrooms. 
And I think I like my uh, dry grass and oaks. And you <gasps> did write a poem called Arabic about Beirut. And I was wondering if you could read that to us. But uh, let me just say to our listeners who just tuned in that this is KSQD, Santa Cruz. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley, and you can find us also on Facebook at the Hive Poetry Collective. And we have a blog called hivepoetry.org. And now Danusha Lemaris is going to read to us from her poem, Arabic, which is from her first book, The Moons of August. Thanks, Deanne. <clears throat> Arabic. I don't remember the sounds rising from below my breastbone, though I spoke that golden language with the girls of Beirut. Playing hopscotch on the hot asphalt, we called out to our mothers for lemonade. And when the men walking home from work stooped down, slipped us coins for candy, we thanked them. At the market, I understood the bargaining of the butcher, the vendors of fig and bread. In Arabic, I whispered into the tufted ears of a donkey, professing my love. And in Arabic, I sang at school or dreamt at night. There is an Arab saying, Sad are only those who understand. What did I know then of the endless trail of losses? In the years that have passed, I've buried a lover, a brother, a son. At night, the low drum roll of bombs eroded the edges of the city. The girls, who knows what has been taken from them? For a brief season, I woke to a man who would whisper to me in Arabic, then tap the valley of my sternum, ask me to repeat each word, coaxing the rusty syllables from my throat. See, he said, they're still there, though even that memory is faint. And maybe he was right. What's gone is not quite gone, but lingers. Not the language, but the bones of the language. Not the beloved, but the dark bed the beloved makes inside our bodies. Thank you, Danusha. That was Danusha Lamaris reading Arabic here on the Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD Santa Cruz. So um, I think this is a great poem to begin with because it's got so many of your themes in it. And it's also a really good example of how placed your poems are. I love those details at the beginning. Um, lemonade, you know, the real sensory imagery of the lemonade, professing the love to the donkey, the figs, the bread. I mean, we really do see this place because mm. of all the details. It's really well placed. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I was so young when I was there that really, and I guess when you're a kid, in a way, that's what your memories are, right? They're little slivers. Very They're sensory. They're the food and the mm -hmm. feel of things. I think that donkey might have been at the home of Khalil Gibran, so not are you in Beirut kidding? per se. I think it was. I remember my parents saying, we took you to Damascus. Now, is that where the home of Khalil Gibran is? I think that's what it was. And there was a donkey there and they took a picture of me with it. Um, 
And I remember that donkey. And so it's just kind of odd, these little wisps of memory, right? Mm-hmm. And those girls on the courtyard. And I felt like I didn't set this up well by saying, okay, what the heck was Danusha doing in, in Beirut in 1975 to six, somewhere in there? Um, and it's that my dad was actually, as an engineer, helping design a city in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And it was easier for the families to live in Beirut uh, where women could move about more freely. And so that was the situation. That's why the families were stationed in Beirut. And um, and then my dad would fly uh, back and forth to Saudi from Lebanon. And I went to, meanwhile, I went to preschool. So <laughs> these were my concerns at that time. Well, it's an excellent poem to set up um, one of your themes, your major themes, which is loss. Hmm. And you even mention them in the poem, a lover, a brother, a son. But the city, um, Beirut was like the Paris of the Middle East, right? Right. And it has been, it has suffered a lot. It has suffered a lot, yeah. It's had a lot of loss. So what an excellent metaphor for personal pain. Not that one person's pain ever amounts to the pain of a whole um, community like that, but it's sort of seemed to me to be the right poem to start um, this last book. I think that another um, piece of this poem that is a good segue into your style and your themes is this idea of not the language, but the bones of the language, not the beloved, but the dark bed the beloved makes inside our bodies. There's this deepening of the imagery and going below the surface and looking for the body in the fog, so to mm-hmm. speak, of what is the deeper meaning below the memories. And then and what's under the that, And right? then what's under that. And then what's under that. And I, I, I sometimes keep a little sort of altar on my writing desk to remind me, you know, what's under that? And then what? And then what? Um, because, yeah, that's definitely the goal. Not that I always feel I attain it. Well, you did in that one, and you did you did in many, and we'll continue reading a few more. Okay, let's get into a little bit more of your slightly more recent history. You came to Santa Cruz for the art program at UCSC. Uh, but you stayed for the poetry. <laughs> it seems like that's what happened. Or I came like as a lost, confused young person, uh, not that's knowing what, what I was going to do. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was younger, younger. But when I got to university, I thought, well, what am I going to do with that? How will I make a living? I thought all those things that a lot of people think. And I let myself get derailed, I think. But, or maybe I didn't, because I ended up then studying studio art and loving it. It was, it was fantastic. I got to paint for years with Eduardo Carrillo, who's just an amazing local painter. He passed away, oh, maybe some 20 years ago now. Um, not that long ago. Or has it been? I don't know. Gosh. But I got to do that, and I loved it. I loved getting to paint for that time that I did. Do you feel that there's a relationship between being a visual artist and being a poet? I think there is. I don't know how well I can define it. I think that there is that thing where there's a really heightened sense of concentration where when you're in your, you've painted too, right? Mm-hmm. You're also a painter. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you're in the middle of working with color and line 
and light and shadow, you can't actually think about anything else, right? Yeah, I can remember when I started painting, all of a sudden the world seemed much more alive, kind of vibrating, almost like an impressionist painting. Yeah, it's that it's you're trying, you're wearing a different kind of mind, right? And I remember I would just look at somebody and friends of mine could tell when I was in that mode because I'm seeing lilac in their Mm. eyelids or a little green in the tone under the skin and, you know, things like that that I hadn't perceived before. And I was really happy when I was painting. So it is kind of similar in the sense that it's an enhanced way of being in the world. A, I think a little more so. alive. You're a lot. Some part of you is more alive. Is more alive, and I felt more alive around color, especially that it woke up some part of me to be that aware of color, mm-hmm. and that was so enlivening. It sounds like a small thing, but. Going from sort of an angsty teenage person to a person in my 20s who was immersed in color mm. was the most wonderful thing. I'd get to school sometimes at 8 or 8.30 for the long studio classes and paint for four hours, then walk out in the field, maybe get a burrito somewhere, and then go and paint for four more hours. Oh, man, that's the life. Isn't that the life? Yeah. I really felt that way. Well, how did it uh, happen that you began to write poetry? What was that change? Oh, right. Okay, so what happened? What happened is that I saw, I mean, there were the earlier seeds from high school where I met Tony Ho- the poet Tony Hoagland and studied with him. But in terms of when I was older, it was going into Bookshop Santa Cruz and seeing a flyer, which I still have, that is the original flyer for Ellen Bass's workshop. And she was teaching these workshops for women writers, writing about your lives, which she's still teaching one of those. And I thought, why don't I do that? And by the time I did that with my stop and start with school um, and graduating and finding Ellen, I, I was probably about 26 or 27 by the time my life took that turn. But I took those workshops and I think I was in Ellen's workshop for seven years. That seems like a biblical kind of yeah, number. Yeah, so your whole body was supposedly like a different body by the time right, you were I'd, done. <laughs> Although there's some controversy about whether well, that's, that's actually true. true. That's no, but we want it to be true. We want it to be true. And we can write about that. No yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, she's changed a lot of lives, hasn't she? Yeah. With her, with her little uh, workshop. Yeah. We all owe Ellen a lot. Um, so there's a great deal of loss in your poetry, Yes. Loss of a child. That was in, we saw that in Arabic, a lover, a brother. Uh, Loss appears to be one of your muses. I think that's true. Um, I think I talk a lot as a teacher about the irritant, you know, what is the thing that makes us write? And certainly for me, that's been the reason why I had to start writing. Uh, My 30s, my late 20s to my 30s were sort of a series of big personal losses and when you're going through things like that it's like what are you what are you going to do to hold it and to get through it and to still take pleasure in life and I think that that was huge a huge challenge for me certainly when I I had a son born with really special needs when I was 30 and that was the big game changer for me of um going from being that young person who thinks I'm going to go to school, I'm going to figure out what I want to do, 
I wanted to get married and have a family, was doing that. And then to have everything kind of come crashing in from in terms of all the expectations that I had for a future, right? And um, and with my son, it was a chromosomal thing that they never could quite identify, but it stopped him from developing in terms of his abilities and his state of being beyond an infant state. Um, so he needed a lot of care around the clock. So literally, I'd be holding him and um, with a little notebook in my hand, taking notes um, while I was holding him, feeding him, and doing other things because his care was so all-encompassing for a period of my life. So you were taking notes on things to write about while you were taking I care was of him? writing. I was journaling about him. I was journaling about other things. It was largely looking like journaling and not poems per se, although there were some poems in there. But yeah, I was sort of trying to figure out how to balance still being a person, my own person, and taking care of a person. That's who, real who survival that. instinct, a real, you know, determination to take your experience and turn it into something, of, you know, a piece of art, something manageable like a piece of art. That's real determination. Mm. Well, I was lucky to have listeners, too. Being in Ellen's class, I could take what I'd written and share it. And that's healing. It felt really good. And it helped me, I don't know if it helped make sense of the circumstance, but it helped me find a lot of richness in it. Poetry fills a lot of roles in in our lives. I mean, we have our beautiful finished products that make it into books or get published, but there's also the journaling and the sharing with others which is almost like a kind of tilling of the soil. It's true. And in a way, I think that those parts are the most important parts. We can polish and polish a poem, and certainly that has value. But the thing that really I find sacred about the writing process is about honoring the voice and the experience of each person. To me, that's a sacred thing. So there's no poem that's just worth totally brushing over or tossing, right? There's some impulse that made that poem want to make it to the page. And when you're a good teacher, you can see that in other people's poetry. I think that part of it is 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 that, looking into the, the core of the, the poem. The core of it, right. And you are a teacher as well, taught most of your career too, mm, right? So school. it's taught high school and there's that aspect of yeah of teaching that I think is really about holding vulnerability Mm -hmm. um creating a space that's safe enough that people can bring the things that they need to say and to know that they're held in value and in a lot of ways I feel that that is the core thing that draws me to writing but also to sharing writing in the larger community or creating spaces where more voices are heard because there's something about that Mm -hmm. in a culture where we don't hold a lot of things, a lot of edifying things as sacred. I feel that the story of the individual and their experience is something 
to sanctify. Yeah, like StoryCorps on NPR. Just, you know, just listening to other people's stories really builds empathy and builds bridges a lot. Well, maybe it would be, this would be a good time to read another poem. And if you just tuned in, this is KSQD, Santa Cruz. This is The Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley, and I'm here with Denusha Lamaris, and she is about to read the poem, The Grass. All right, Dan. Um, it's hard to follow in the footsteps of Whitman, who obviously wrote extensively about the grass, but this is, in a way, my answer to that poem or one, one of many responses I have to, to his writing of Leaves of Grass and Song of Myself. The Grass. Impossible not to ask, post Whitman, what is it? Green blades, a word that makes of it an artillery, the weapons of the soil brandished on the breeze. Or is it the bristles of the biome, a living beast with emerald spines, a thin defense against our ongoing intrusion. Or it's a shag rug laid over the scuffed floors of history, fibers woven from the hair of the dead. All my life, I've wanted to love the world and what it's made of. Loam, peat moss, this stiff-edged greenery. And then I do. And then I recoil again at the roughness of things, the way goodness is taken mercilessly back into the soil and covered up with grass. The way whole tribes have been forced beneath that green layer, and it has served to hide the evidence. How most tragedy is not an accident, but a consequence for being wrong-bodied at the center of a target. I don't matter. It doesn't care my brother would say as a child, confusing the two. And now he's dead by his own hand, as if tricked by an error of language. What is the grass? It is what covers his body and is composed of his body. I have sat on the grass over his grave, his coffinless grave, where we laid him down in the moist soil. I have sat on the rich verdure arisen from his flesh, rocking his young son in my arms as the leaves of the grass bent in the wind, and the bees lowered themselves to the blossoms of clover, and the grass trembled beneath their earthly weight. So I think I can say now that the grass is my brother, and in it I sense his patience, his quiet goodness, as if they were its fragrance. So it is the grass to whom I can address this poem, to whom I can speak. Dear grass, dear curling fronds, dear little twists of green, it's me, your sister. I do not blame you. I only want to sit with you and stroke your windy hair. Thank you, Danusha. That was Danusha Lamaris reading The Grass here on The Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. So, True Confessions, this is just one of my favorite poems right now. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many things I love about it. 
but I just think I want to right now zero in on where it really takes a turn and where it becomes not just about the grass, but about suddenly something as large as genocide. Mm. The way whole tribes have been forced beneath that green layer and it has served to hide the evidence. How most tragedy is not an accident, but a consequence for being wrong bodied at the center of a target. How did you ever come up with such a great phrase as wrong bodied at the center of a target? And it, because it just, it means so many things. It conjures up racism. Mm. It conjures up innocence. Love that phrase. Well, thank you, Dion. I wish I knew how to answer that. It's like, when, how, where did these ideas come from when we're writing? I don't really know. I think I certainly owe a debt to Whitman here, reading and rereading him and letting this poem steep in his writing. A lot about the body in Whitman. A lot about the body. And we owe all of us such a debt, right, as writers to all the other poets that we love and admire. And I think I owe a lot to staying up really late at night. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you really got on a roll here on this one. It really feels like you let yourself go and go into a really deep, sad place on this one. Mm. And I should say that this is a poem from my next book. We've switched over. Oh, right. That um, I have this manuscript in front of me for my book, Bonfire Opera, that's coming out in the next spring, spring of 2020 from University of Pittsburgh Press. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm sitting here, as you know, adding and removing commas and doing some of the last edits on these poems. This one uh, also really is, um, has a lot of detail. Once again, um, you're asking, what is grass? You say, it's this, it's that, it's this, it's that. You keep kind of changing, or is it this? You keep kind of changing your mind as you go along mm -hmm. which makes us feel like well can we ever really understand grass or we do we just experience grass it's love that list is is wonderful mm. thank you and i certainly owe whitman for that as well and all his different definitions of it but in a way it can be applied to anything it's we're in a complicated relationship with a lot of things and i think for me, that's what makes me want to write about something. If I know how I feel about something, I probably don't want to write about it. But when I'm in some kind of a complicated relationship to it, I probably do want to write about it. Well, the complication of grass is raised early on in the poem when you refer to it as an artillery. Right away, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily, we know this is not necessarily going to be a sweetness and light poem. I guess that's the first and the, sign. And it's bristles, a beast. Maybe I'll just read that part. Um, green blades, a word that makes of it an artillery. The weapons of the soil, brandished on the breeze. Or is it the bristles of the biome, a living beast with emerald spines, a thin defense against our ongoing intrusion? Or it's a shag rug laid over the scuffed floors of history, fibers, 
woven from the hair of the dead. Yeah, right away we see. I mean, you, you really zoom out when you talk about our ongoing intrusion. It's a little bit environmental right there at that point. Yeah, I think there's definitely a grain of that in here, too, and it's in my intention in writing it. Um, that sense that we are in many ways intruders on the planet or in the way that we uh, comport ourselves and our business. And on a personal note, something I took out of the poem is that I'm very allergic to grass. <laughs> so <laughs> I can get hives from sitting on it. And so I know that that's in here too of me i guess the weapons the soil um i'm somebody Pollen. who has few allergies but i'm very allergic to that's many funny. kinds of grass that's funny <laughs> somehow that went out in the early edits uh toward the end you do something mm. i've seen you do in your poems and that is rename things um dear grass dear curling fronds dear little twists of green you did that in the moon your moon poem in um the moons of august you do that when you're oh, talking right. about your mother's sister of the centrifuge oh right etc yeah it's just giving things lots of different names naming you're right that's that is going on there isn't it mm-hmm. and this poem i should also say is out um probably by the time this airs in the american poetry review in the may june issue 2019 if anybody wants to hold it in their hands and see it um it should be in there as well it's always good to get apr keeps you up to date on what's hot i know poetry what's, world. what's hot and what's see not where you are now who wore it best yeah. <laughs> and I just, the last thing i want to say about this poem is the forgiveness you feel for your brother it's me your sister i do not blame you i only want to sit with you and stroke your windy hair it's so open. The heart is so open mm. in this. It ends. It ends on love. Ends on love. Yay. Yeah. So yeah. love the grass. And and I want to say too. So many poems. I feel like really, in a way, most of my poems are whether, in a way that's evident or not, are poems of address. They're love letters in a way. I do think of them as love letters. Um, and certainly this is a love letter to my brother who I just always adored. Mm -hmm. You know, people thought we were twins. We just were so connected. And I, I love that poetry is a way that I get to still talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. This is a real, a little sort of, what do you say? It's an elegy kind of a, in a way. And you say it right here, all my life, I've wanted to love the world. And what it's made of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as love, it's not just always uh, a straightforward thing. It's got a lot of dimensions in this poem. It's mm-hmm. got a lot of tragedy and a lot of beauty. Thank you. If you just tuned in, you're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. You can also find us on Facebook at the Hive Poetry Collective and on our blog, Hive poetry.org. And I'm Deanna Riley. I'm talking to Denisha Lamiris about her poetry. And I want to talk about another one of your themes in your poems, Denisha, is pleasure and desire. Um, Being very frank about sex and a woman's desire for pleasure. So why do you think it is important for women to write about their needs and desires? 
That's a good question, Dion. I think in a way it's, why is it important for us to write about any of these things? And I think there's something about just telling the truth about our experience that really matters. And having the freedom to do that is so empowering. And there was a time when writers like the poet Sharon Olds, who Mm. won the Pulitzer Prize a few years back for her book, Stag's Leap. And for anyone listening, I strongly recommend that book. It's just a gorgeous book and a painful book. It's about her divorce from a long um, husband she'd been with for, for decades. And Sharon kind of broke a lot of rules early on. And wrote a lot about her experience of pleasure and sexuality and her work was discounted early on as being um, unimportant and she wrote about childbearing she wrote about all those things and got a lot of flack for it and I think we're in an era now where women can definitely write about those experiences and have their work be celebrated. Joni Mitchell got the same kind of criticism for talking about her feelings by Bob Dylan and other male musicians. But Mm. why not write about what is not being spoken about? That's what people need to hear about. That's true, right? And and that's the bottom line, I think, as writers, is that we want to keep pushing some of those boundaries and we want to say the unsayable. I think that's what makes it kind of thrilling to be a writer. And I think that, again, that's what's going to make the writing hopefully interesting to an audience as well. Entering the mystery. And I guess women are always a little bit of a mystery, especially to men. True. Um, So why don't you go ahead and read one of your poems about desire and passion? And um, let me just say once again, this is KSQD Santa Cruz, and this is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley, and now Danusha Lameros is going to read her poem, Bonfire Opera. Thanks, Deanna. This is the title poem of the upcoming book, and it's based on semi-true, well, on true events. It's a, it's a version of true events, and it's a Santa Cruz poem for sure. Bonfire Opera. In those days, there was a woman in our circle who was known not only for her beauty, but also for taking off all her clothes and singing opera. And sure enough, as the night wore on, and the stars emerged to stare at their reflections on the sea, and everyone had drunk a little wine, she began to disrobe, loose her great bosom, and the tender belly pale in the moonlight, the Viking hips, and to let her torn raiment fall to the sand as we looked up from the flames. And then a voice lifted into the dark, high and clear as a flock of blackbirds, and everything was very still. The way the congregation quiets when the priest prays over the incense and the smoke wafts up into the rafters. I wanted to be that free inside the body, the doors of pleasure opening one after the next, an arpeggio climbing the ladder of sky, 
and all the while she was singing and wading into the water until it rose up to her waist and then lapped at the underside of her breasts, and the aria drifted over us, her soprano spare and sharp in the night air. And even though I was young, somehow in that moment I heard it, the song inside the song, and I knew then that this was not the hymn of promise, but the body's bright wailing against its limits. A bird caught in a cathedral, the way it tries to escape by throwing itself again and again against the stained glass. Thank you, Danusha. That was Bonfire Opera, the titular poem from Danusha Lamaris's new volume of poetry, and I'm Dion O'Reilly on the Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD Santa Cruz. Well, this poem, to me, it almost starts out like a fairy tale. In those days, it's almost like once upon a time. Once upon a time, right? There was a woman (laughs) in our circle who was known not only for her beauty, it's like know once upon a time there was this beautiful cinderella or something (laughs) right it feels like the timeless time but then we see that she takes off her clothes and we're like okay it's not it's not a fairy tale (laughs) aren't there fairy tales like that i don't know (laughs) maybe not maybe we'll write some (laughs) maybe we will um and but also as the night wore on and the stars emerged to stare at their reflections on the sea that sounds like a fairy tale a little bit to Uh me Interesting. Well, it's funny, these things that are sort of epic become, I don't know, placed somewhere outside of time, I think. Archetypal. Yeah, the Mm -hmm. archetype, the woman, the ocean, the stars. You describe her very much like a figure from an opera with Viking. You know, I think of that, was it Figaro? Where the woman... Where's the Viking horns? She's a Viking. Oh, I can't remember if it's that opera. I'm sure I researched that when I was writing this, Well, which has know, been a while now. If I've got that wrong, I don't think that KSQD wants to get letters about it. <laughs> I think it's wrong, but you but, can always tell us on our Facebook wanna, page. But, but yeah, leave, a, leave a comment at uh, our Facebook page, the Hive Poetry Collective. And in general, too, I should say. Um, as somebody involved in, in making this show, we love hearing from you all out there. So if you want to comment on the poems or you'd like copies of poems, you know, to have them posted or anything like that, feel free to interact with us on our blog and also our Facebook page, The Hive Poetry Collective. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Um, but you do describe this woman much like an opera singer. She's wearing raiment and she's got the Viking hips. Um So I just love that image there. Hmm. But as you often do, um, there's a lot, a sort of a spiritual or a religious element. Um, People should buy your book so they can see how how often that um, these themes recur in more and more interesting ways as you go through the poems. Um, But you describe her singing like being in a cathedral. Right. Oh, here. Yes, here it is. This was not the hymn of promise, but the body's bright wailing against its limits. A bird caught in a cathedral. The way it tries to escape by throwing itself again and again against the stained glass. Hmm. So sort of a spiritual element brought in there. 
You keep sneaking in. You're right. That's definitely a theme. And the funny thing about putting a manuscript together is you really notice the places that you visit again and again and again. A lot of birds and a lot of cathedrals and incense. Yeah, and... A lot of incense. And it's funny because I was raised Protestant, um, Lutheran, having a Dutch dad. And somehow my dad went to this church. We're talking up in Humboldt County, where I lived with him in the summers, my, where my brother and I would visit with him. And he went to this church that was in the Redwoods. And I think, a, and I loved that place. Mm. You could see Redwoods all around. It was deep in the forest. It was really some kind of monastic retreat, uh, a monastery of some kind with nuns too. Can you have nuns at monasteries? I don't know. I'm not a Catholic. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what was going on. But I think that a lot of that has seeped into the poems as well, that there is something about ritual that I got from that at a, as a pretty young kid that I really did love. Yeah, churches, sometimes sitting in a church is like, almost like reading a book because there's all this iconography around on the stained glass and right. the figures. Um, it's, I guess they were designed for preliterate people to put across the stories of the Bible. So you just absorb a lot of, a lot of imagery, a lot of imagery and storytelling and, and stuff. In I mean, the Bible is still such a foundation for so much that happens poetically. You, you can't not refer to it in some way because it's the collective yeah. story I, for our it, culture in so many ways. It's yeah. very intriguing, very mm -hmm. intriguing. Um, I see in this too, your theme of the deeper meaning, the song inside the song. It's very much like the body inside of the beloved, the layers of meaning. Hmm. Well, it's funny how you can learn more about your poems by hearing somebody <laughs> else talk about them. Well, <laughs> yes. you know, the woman is also... Um, <laughs> Walking out into the water at some point here in this poem, um, she was all the while she was singing and wading into the water until it rose up to her waist and then lapped at the underside of her breasts. And that's almost like the very common trope in literature of women committing suicide by walking into the ocean, like the awakening and Virginia Woolf that you oh, so right. often see. It often goes toward that instead of something... That's about, that's enlivening exalted. or exalted. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so then, but then it takes another turn. Yeah, so this is, um, this is about a woman's passion. So this is a really appropriate poem for what we're talking about. Hmm. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about um, your current position as Poet Laureate of Santa Cruz. But before we get into that, let's once again say that this is KSQD for anyone who just tuned in. KSQD Santa Cruz. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Dion O'Reilly talking with Danusha Lamaris, and she is the Poet Laureate of Santa Cruz County. And uh, being Poet Laureate gives one the opportunity to forward um, one's vision of poetry's place in the world. So for you, uh, Danusha, what is that vision? And um, how are you acting out on that in your new role as Poet Laureate? Well, I definitely, first of all, feel humbled and um, happy to be in these shoes right now. And we've had such such wonderful poets in the role of Poet Laureate in Santa Cruz, such as Ellen Bass, 
David Swanger, Robert Sward, Gary Young, not in that order. Did I miss anybody? Do, 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 do. Nope. So I'm the fifth one. And we're really lucky to have such a wealth of poetry here in Santa Cruz. And many of those poets have done things such as working in the jails um, with inmates. And I feel that's a really important thing to be doing. And what I'm doing is partly this, the hive, Mm -hmm. and also some poetry pop-ups around the county. And so that is collaborating with existing communities and bringing poetry there. We did one at a yoga studio um, a few months ago, and that was really fun. But I definitely want to move those around the county, and so people are free to contact me as well. But the main thing that, um, that I feel the desire to create and express is just connecting the different communities of poetry there's so many pockets we have people doing spoken word yeah every monday at uh, ma right oh right thanks yeah. for that and yeah. at what time do you know what time that starts i feel like it's no but they have a whole poetry workshop where they right they work on poems and then there's they a read sign them. up for the open yeah. mic so you might want to look at um on facebook for that or for the ma and see if it's on there. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish we had that information available. We can tack it on to the end as well. Mm-hmm. But there's the spoken word community. Word Church. Word Church. That's, That's what it's called. Word Thank Church you. on Facebook. They have word a Facebook Church. page. Thank yeah. you. So there's that. And then there's all these different communities of poets writing in groups. I have a poetry group I've belonged to for a good, I don't know, seven or eight years. And there's just so many pockets. There's people who get together to write haiku. Obviously, there's people writing in different languages, coming especially from Spanish and writing in Spanish or writing poems that are bilingual that go back and forth. We just have so many pockets and often they don't overlap. We exist in these different worlds. And I think it's really exciting to create a forum where we bring more of those voices together and bring more people together as well. It's diversity, basically. Basically the diversity of it. Because we, I mean, it's a word that gets, we use so easily. um, But the reality of it is that it is exciting to come into contact with people who are making art in a way that's connected to the art we're making, but also different from it. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in what the process of writing does for the writer. Because one thing that writing has done for me is give me community and friends. In a way, I think we know who we are by finding out that the other people doing it are really our tribe. You have a lot more fun when you discover people who think the way you do and are doing the same kinds of struggles and work that you do. It's just fun to be around. It's just fun. Mm -hmm. And that's a really underestimated part of it. I think people think that writing is just a solitary endeavor. And it's so hard. And it's so hard. And there's parts of it that are hard, but it doesn't have to be as hard, I feel, or as solitary. Mm -hmm. There's parts where you're really wrestling it out. Like what did Ada Limon say? It's like, in two every snakes, poem, there are two, two snakes, snakes yeah. battling it out. And one's one, got to win. One's got to prevail. Exactly. Right. And no one's going to fix that for you. But there's something about having a supportive community to share your work with that I think gives us more than just an artistic leg up, but also a feeling of value as human beings. And sometimes when you're wrestling with a concept in a poem and you bring it to someone 
they can really help you see the core of the issue that you're grappling with. And that just helps promote self-knowledge when you really understand yourself better when you when you go deeper into the struggles of the poem. So I mean, getting support for that is important. That's true. And that's, it's such a vulnerable thing to do. That's another thing that really strikes me about it. It's very vulnerable to write. It's vulnerable to spend that time with your inner experience and then to put it on the page. It's vulnerable to then share it. And you want it to be received with kindness. And so I think that so much of the practice of writing and sharing in community is about um, opening ourselves to being that for others, for being a kind place for and a soft place for them to fall with their writing. And it, we can also be rigorous in doing that. I, I was talking with the po- the writer, sorry, Pam Houston, over the summer, who was talking about how she has found that really important in creating the workshops that she's created, that they are rigorous and kind. And so I think that's what we want when we get feedback and share our work as well. Like being a good parent or a good dog owner or... Right. Everything's like that. <laughs> Everything's like we want a good friend. structure, right? Yeah. We want mm-hmm. structure and we want kindness. Well, um, yeah, the term diversity is kind of a, a almost a cliche. It's used so much. But when I was doing the interview with Christopher Soriano, um, who's a young man, um, he's a millennial, and he said that what changed his life was representation, was actually hearing poetry in Spanish and hearing poetry written by young men like him and that that changed his life. So the more voices that we can put on the air and get out there, the more people we help. I think that's true. If it's just the same old people all the time, then they're... We get the idea that it's a room we're not welcome in. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I've asked myself a lot is who gets to be in this poem? Who gets to be in this poem? And we can apply that to any forum. Who gets to be at the microphone of giving a reading? And we can see that this is an era where that's an expanding pool. And I think that's one of the things that makes American poetry so exciting in this exact moment, despite all the other things going on in the world. Well, I'm excited. <laughs> so this is KSQD, Santa Cruz. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley, and I've been talking to Danusha Lamaris about her poetry, her life, and her job now as Poet Laureate of Santa Cruz County. Her new book is going to be coming out when? Spring of 2020. Bonfire Opera. So you'll probably be doing a reading somewhere out in town. I'm you? sure I will be, and I'll oh. announce it when I do. Yeah, thank so you. So stay, stay, stay tuned for that. Thanks, Dion. Thanks for having me. Thanks. In Must Know Poetry News, award-winning poet Gary Young and Santa Cruz Word Church co-curator Joseph Jason Santiago Lacour will read Friday, May 10th, in a fundraiser for the Young Writers Program. The reading runs from 7 to 8.30 p.m. 
at a private Santa Cruz residence. Location given at registration. Suggested sliding scale donation of $10 to $50 is asked to help support the Young Writers Program. Light snacks will be available. Drinks will be available for purchase. Condor's Hope Winery will provide wine. Register to attend at eventbrite.com. Sitting is limited. And in other news, there will be a reading as part of the Living Writers series at Peace United Church this Thursday, May 9th, from 5.20 p.m. to 7 p.m. at 900 High Street. Brenda Shaughnessy and Ellen Bass. Brenda Shaughnessy graduated from UC Santa Cruz. She's the author of Interior with Sudden Joy, Human Dark with Sugar, Our Andromeda, and other titles. She's a winner of the James Laughlin Award from the Academy of American Poets. She's taught of Columbia, Princeton, and NYU. Our local Ellen Bass is a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. Her books include Like a Beggar, The Human Line, and others. Her poetry has appeared frequently in the New Yorker, American Poetry Review, and many other journals. She's a winner of the Lambda Literary Award, the Pablo Neruda Prize, and the Larry Levis Award. Once again, this will be a reading as part of the Living Writers series. Brenda Shaughnessy and Ellen Bass will be reading at Peace United Church this Thursday, May 9th, from 5.20 p.m. to 7 p.m. at 900 High Street. For more information, please visit creativewriting.ucsc.edu. Again, creativewriting.ucsc.edu. Thanks again for listening to The Hive. And now for Cephalotron. Be for the honey, be, be for the, yeah. be for the honey, be, be for the. Mm-hmm.